Hey everyone, this is Natalie Ivey, and I've got a special show today that you don't want to miss. I'm going to sit down with Wendy Evans, Senior Ethics Officer with Lockheed Martin, to discuss post-pandemic trends in internal investigations, particularly the shift to conducting virtual interviews. Welcome to the HR Investigations Podcast, exploring the issues, challenges, strategies, and solutions. Sponsored by RPCHR and hosted by Natalie Ivey, an HR consultant, licensed PI, and author of the best-selling book, How to Conduct Internal Investigations, a Practical Guide for Human Resource Professionals. And now, here's Natalie. Let's get into the show and let's discuss the topic for today's podcast, Trends in Internal Investigations During and Post COVID-19. So with this uh, recording of this podcast, which is uh, March the 3rd, 2022, uh, we're really kind of coming out of the end of the pandemic, at least we'd like to think so. We don't know what's around the corner, but let's hope we're coming out of the out of the woods. So uh, for today's show, I'm happy to have with me Wendy Evans. She's Senior Manager of Ethics Core Programs and Services with Lockheed Martin. Uh, Wendy and I met a number of years ago when she and members of her ethics team attended an internal investigations training class that I was teaching. And I'm so happy to have you with us today, Wendy. And I'd like to start out by having you share a little brief career biography with our audience. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Natalie. And uh, I come to uh, the ethics uh, by way of an interesting path. I don't think you grow up uh, thinking I'm going to be an ethics and compliance officer. In fact, it probably wasn't even a recognized profession per se when I was going to college uh, in Kentucky. So I actually have a career that involves 16 years of law enforcement Um, The first part of that was as a police officer in Louisville, Kentucky, and then I joined the FBI, Mm -hmm. and it was a great job. I focused on white-collar crime, bank fraud, bankruptcy fraud, a lot of financial healthcare fraud cases, and then I moved after the events of 9-11 into the counterintelligence arena, and uh, I, again, did that about eight years. Became a mom a little later in life, which led me to Lockheed Martin. They came knocking at my door when I was about to return from maternity leave. And I never imagined that I would go into private industry. I'd always been kind of a government person, but Mm -hmm. it was a great segue. I learned so much. And I actually came to Lockheed Martin first as a security manager. Um, But my focus and specialty was in what both of us are passionate about, investigation. So I really became an arm of HR. I was conducting most of the HR policy and behavioral investigations for Lockheed Martin. And then I joined the ethics and compliance team in 2010. I'm sure you handle a myriad of investigations from all facets. And so having some of that investigative background is is certainly well-suited for what you do. So so what I'd like to do is uh, talk a bit of shop about investigations um, right now. Let's let's talk about some of the trends, um, particularly uh, during the pandemic. What are some of the things that that you are seeing? What are some of the things that may be even challenging uh, individuals that uh, you have in kind of your circle? Right. I I think that's it's such an important topic because I think it caught us all off guard, didn't it, in 2020? I know I was traveling right up until we got orders we could not travel. Mm -hmm. And uh, we found ourselves, uh, many of us were already telecommuters, however, 
a large number of people, regardless of where you were in the world, found themselves working from home. Maybe for the first time, we were used to brick and mortar. We were used to uh, very rigid schedules, so to speak, uh, core hours that were pretty set in stone. And all of a sudden, we found ourselves possibly with uh, aging parents at home with us who are usually home during the day while we were at work, maybe children who would normally be in school who were with us and we were having to flex schedules. Now we're seeing, I think, a trend moving away. Children have gone back to school. Um, some of us may never return to brick and mortar. So I think that's a trend. We're seeing a lot of companies reevaluating. Wow, we did pretty well with people working from home. In fact, we may have seen some productivity go up, less distractions for some. Other people said, I found it very distracting to be at home. And I think you're seeing a, a return to some kind of a, a balance of what was working for companies, what was working for individual employees. And so we're still in that transition, I want to add. I don't think we're there yet because lo and behold, we think we're coming out of COVID and the second wave hits with Delta. We've had yet the third wave of Omicron. Yeah. And who knows what's in the future? We all hope that it's lessening with severity each time, which seems to be a trend, though I'm not a doctor. Some people are working back at a facility a couple of days a week, and then they're working from home the other three. So I think you're seeing a lot of companies adapting and adjusting. And we have to face reality. A lot of people listening to your podcast, some lines of business may have gone away. Yeah. Uh, supply chain may have impacted a company so much yep. that not only are you dealing with these personal changes in your work environment, your organization may have changed drastically because of ramifications of the pandemic, if that makes sense. Very much so. And uh, I, I do know that um, some of the things that we saw uh, from you know, our perspective as, as outside consultants um, when uh, we were going through the pandemic, um, we predicted it that we would start to see investigations into fraudulent vaccination cards. Um, we knew it. We knew it was coming. And right. organizations were moving toward mandating vaccines, which, um, you know, there are a lot of, um, you know, pros and cons, uh, you know, on both sides of that issue. But regardless, if an organization had mandated it, um, and, you know, individuals really were wanting to keep their job, but yet they still didn't really want the vaccine. Then there were some uh, fraudulent vaccine cards that were being presented. So absolutely. I'm on a benchmarking group with a lot of organizations, not just aerospace and defense. And I can tell you, you are exactly right. Those issues became very important. Um, we were, for example, in ethics and compliance, we give guidance. We don't just do investigations. We got a lot of requests of, can you clarify the mask policy uh, or there's are people in my work group not wearing a mask and I suspect that they're not back. They're just saying they're vaccinated, but they're not. And so, yes, you, you do see a lot of that across industries. And an interesting trend is, and I'm curious what your take is on this, Natalie, but it seems so many companies have seen kind of a reduction in some conduct investigations, uh, behavioral investigations. And, you know, some of us don't have yet quantitative analysis hasn't fully happened yet as a result of the pandemic. But from a qualitative standpoint, I think there's speculation. A, mm -hmm. are people just not sitting shoulder to shoulder? And so there's less negative interactions. There's less potential for there to be an interpersonal communication issue, for example, or um, or were people's priorities just 
elsewhere. So that kind of did not become something that they might have uh, reported before they thought, oh, that's the least of my concern right now. I'm getting my job done. So I was curious if you saw that, but we, we have seen a trend for maybe uh, more requests for guidance and maybe fewer investigations at the height of the pandemic. Yeah. So the, uh, the investigations from, from our vantage point s- somewhat shifted um, in that we did not see as much of the, uh, the misconduct. Um, so we didn't really see, you know, kind of our normal conflict of interest cases or uh, certainly the, um, the cases of harassment, those went down. However, um, what we did see the uptick in were accommodation investigations. And the reason is that it flip-flopped in that we had a lot of individuals around the vaccine mandates that were requesting religious exemption. And then, you know, how do we determine if it is a sincerely held religious belief in order for them to be able to get the religious exemption to the vaccine? So so we saw a little bit of that flip-flop. Yeah, exactly. My EEO colleagues uh, at our company, where we have security investigators, you know, we we support all of us support HR, but we also have an EEO investigative team. And you are correct. And on my benchmarking group, same feedback that um, uh, the requ- the accommodation process definitely saw an increase in activity uh, yeah. versus what we saw more traditionally for the types of things being reported. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um you know, creating uh, some consistency. So from a consulting standpoint, we provided uh, some standard documents that were used in order to clarify that religious Mm -hmm. exemption and to be consistent and how they were evaluating that. And that really tended to help uh, minimize the kind of moving down the road to an EEOC charge. So exactly. uh, Yeah. So coming out of um, the pandemic, kind of thinking about the, the work environment and organizations trying to settle on, uh, you know, hybrid workspace, such as two days at, uh, at home, three days on site, or, you know, vice versa, or, you know, kind of splitting it down the middle. I see that definitely uh, in a lot of our organizations, especially the, the very large global companies, we're definitely seeing a hybrid model, you know, as far as where we're going from the standpoint of investigations, and our effectiveness in being able to do much more in the virtual space. So let's kind of talk about that in this, um, this transition from so many of our investigations are done face-to-face, but we've pivoted to doing much more virtual investigations. Let's talk about some of the things that we've learned through this period of time that are you know, kind of some aha moments about conducting virtual investigations. Can you share with right. me? Right, you are exactly right. Um, we found a lot of interesting changes were upon us with the pandemic. In the past, traditionally, uh, even though we're a global organization, we would try to be on site uh, with perhaps a, uh, a significant subject, I should say, maybe an executive, a serious matter, a particular, they're all serious, right? But you know what I'm saying, the more significant cases, the more complex cases with a lot of evidence that you needed to review with someone, we would have the luxury of getting on an airplane and going to see that person. And, and uh, you knew that you would see them at the site where they were assigned. So all this changed when travel was no longer really feasible or very difficult. uh, When that subject or that witness might not be at a facility. Where would you meet if you were able to travel? Um, so all of these things became issues that we had to deal with. And while most organizations, if you have 
a presence uh, large domestically or internationally, we were pretty used to doing some phone calls, especially witnesses, maybe by phone. Not altogether bad because you tend to listen very acutely when you're by phone and you don't see someone in person, you don't see their expressions. So that wasn't a bad thing. But then we found ourselves with these great collaboration tools. I will tell you, our company started, we already had some Zoom licenses, for example, but you found companies going with uh, Meet Now, GoToMeeting, Zoom, Microsoft Teams, and you saw companies saying, whoa, we, we need another way of communicating here that allows us to have more interaction and more face-to-face. So I, for example, got a Zoom license. And I will tell you, it kind of rocked our world as investigators. And uh, even though we were used to doing virtual, if you want to consider a phone call virtual, having that ability to see a very sharp, crisp picture of someone, is it as great as being in person? I don't know, probably not. But I would offer in some ways, it was very beneficial. You still had that personal feel. In fact, there might've been less distractions than being in a conference room where someone peeked in in the middle of your interview and said they needed to use the conference room, right? You had a little more dedicated, focused, face-to-face time, but yet we actually found rapport building wasn't as hard as we thought, Natalie. Um, We were worried, oh, is this going to be awkward? And yeah, getting used to technology or the signal dropping off suddenly, something like that would happen. But once you got past that, people actually felt relaxed because they were in a comfortable environment. They weren't worried about the person next door seeing them in a room with the ethics officer or knowing the ethics officer was on site. So there was this sense that we got, wow, people are actually more comfortable in their home office environment in some cases virtually speaking with you. They weren't worried about that distraction or interruption. They spoke more freely. So we saw, yeah, were there some technical challenges as people got on board and used to, oh, let me get my camera. Oh, let me, let me see. Oh, I don't know. My signal may drop out or yeah, the, the pet came into the room. That actually could be a great icebreaker. You, the reality of the human experience, uh, you could relate. It actually helped with some rapport building. So I guess I'm a glass half full kind of person, but we saw, yeah, there were challenges, but there were a lot of benefits to the virtual environment. I, I agree. I think though, um, with that said though, some of the, the challenges, um, particularly around having to share information and screenshots, you know? Yeah. You can certainly be specific and say, you know, we do not permit you to take any screenshots of, you know, what, what we're doing, but, you know, sometimes uh, individuals just still go do it anyway. Uh, so the sharing of information when we moved to the murder space uh, became a bit cumbersome. Yeah. Absolutely. That was definitely a challenge that we had to address pretty early on. We do quite a bit of mischarging investigations, for example, in our industry. And uh, it's very important. Are people working the amount of time they say they are? Because It's not all overhead. They may be working on a government contract, for example, and we're responsible for those resources. And you are right. Our our, uh, ethics officers found out right away, oh, I have to share a a spreadsheet uh, showing their ingress or egress or their uh, time on their uh, computing asset, for example. And we learned quickly that we had to set expectations with people. Communication became so important 
clarity of expectations. When you're in person, it's different, right? You can slide a piece of paper across a table. Uh, you can speak uh, and say, well, you know, that, um, let me sit down and look at this with you. All of a sudden you were sharing something and you would hear something like, are they taking a screenshot? And so we learned to prepare uh, scripts is maybe too strong a word, but guidelines for our investigators for here's something that should be said in the email leading up to the interview, setting your expectations, and then articulated verbally at the beginning of the interview. That became more important than ever reviewing our process. Yeah, very much so. And that clarifying of expectations, really important. You know, the other thing that I also foresee um, going into the future uh, and I see a lot of organizations now that really have found the benefit in working virtually. So our investigations going forward, um, you know, particularly around things that could be ethical issues. Um, I, I do see that we will probably still have some harassment and discrimination investigations, but I do think that the harassment investigations are probably going to go down. The only thing that I will say is in environments where there are a lot of non-exempt hourly employees, I think the harassment investigations are still going to be there as a result of things that are posted to social media. We have a lot of cases where individuals have um, you know, been subjected to harassment, but in the online space. And so you know, there's a few posts to Facebook or you know, TikTok, or you know, now there are video, different video posting sites like uh, Periscope that they are using. And so um, I do still see that, but I do see that, um, you know, going forward when we have uh, ethics investigations and where we have to share documents and things like this, it's, um, it's really important that you not only set the expectations in writing on email, but you have standard protocols, like you said, guidelines, but, you know, I very much am a fan of having opening protocols and closing protocols, very specific policy regarding the need to cooperate in internal investigation. So therefore, if I have explained what cooperation means, uh, these are the specific protocols for the conversation that we're about to have. Let's say I'm interviewing a subject. And with that, that said, I need you to really understand the cooperation and internal investigations policy. I am now going to share a copy of that policy with you. So then if um, you have an individual that becomes very difficult uh, is not cooperating with that, you can then remind them of the expectations that you already clarified. That also could uh, potentially lead you down the path of even suspending an individual. Uh, if they continue to fail to cooperate, they refuse to answer questions, they, they refuse to acknowledge a document that, that you want them to look at, if they deny it or just say, oh, look, I'm not even, I'm not even going to open it. I'm not going to look at it. Okay. If they continue to be completely uncooperative, then you have the grounds then at that point to escalate the issue uh, within the leadership chain. And then it may lead to that suspension. And you are exactly right. And you hit on something, Natalie, that I hope listeners will think about if they don't already have it. You are exactly right. Having a policy and we were fortunate we had that before the pandemic. And, and I hope that if people didn't have it, organizations didn't have it, they do now, but that is a policy about the investigative process and the expectation of cooperation from your employees. And you are exactly right. 
then it's incumbent upon us as investigators to review our process and review our expectations. We have something we think is a best practice in that we actually have a brochure mm -hmm. and it explains our expectations and what the process, what they can expect from the process, but it's also importantly, um, it reviews the expectations. Now we are looking at some revisions because of the current virtual environment to specifically call that out. We make sure that our ethics officers do explain in, for example, in any communication, whether that's email, I am ahead of the meeting. What yep. is our expectation? That it will be on video, that you have that capability. If right. you don't, you need to let us know now so that we can facilitate having someone, for example, bring you an asset with a computer, with a camera. Uh, right. We've done that in some cases. We have set up space for the employee to come in and use a computer with a camera. Right. And so as long as your expectations are in that, preparation email, then when we set the meeting notice itself, guess what's reiterated? Here is just a review of those expectations for this call so that they can't say, oh, I didn't see the email. Oh, I misplaced it. <laughs> you opened the meeting notice, didn't you? That meeting notice has all the expectations. And to your point, policy gives you teeth, for lack of a better word. It gives you a consequence. And you can, there's no uh, deniability when and it's right in front of you on a meeting notice what the expectations are for this meeting. And um, now, do you still have issues come up where you have to make an on-the-spot decision? Sure. Real story. Had an interview this week. The person uh, unexpectedly had a bandwidth issue at their home because a child was sick and had to do school remotely and a spouse had to work remotely that day. Unexpectedly, they were in different parts of the home, but the bandwidth was a real issue because frankly, it was in a different country. So here we are. And it was, do I get an interview without video? If I at least have audio, is that better than not doing the interview at all? I determined this was just a witness. It wasn't a subject. So it was okay with me. Yeah. But I use that as an example that investigators always have to be on their toes, don't they? And so you have to kind of think about this before the interview though. What if? Yeah. What if they get upset? What if they discontinue the interview? What if they don't screen share evidence that they say they have or an email? What if they uh, say, well, I'm not going to do video with you, but right. I'll do audio. Yeah. You have to be thinking of some of this ahead of time. Of course. And uh, I think the, uh, the other piece of that is if they do not have the bandwidth, if you keep dropping, that should be part of your opening protocols that there is an alternate number we will continue. And typically this is the problem with the subject. The subject will, you know, some will play these games that they will dodge the investigator and not want to participate. So you put it into the protocols that you will actually have an alternate call in number. You will respond within five minutes of losing the bandwidth if you drop off a of Zoom. And if they fail to do it, now they're failing to cooperate. Exactly. And, and that way they can't later say, well, I didn't know that. I didn't have a number. I, I had no, you know, and, and because sometimes it's clever. Does your screen go blank and it's a technical issue or did they actually disconnect from the call? Right. Uh, sometimes you don't know because it can yeah. be abrupt. And having those protocols articulated in advance. Mm -hmm. it, it's so important because to your point, then that subject says, oh, Wendy already gave me the callback number, her personal cell. I will call her within five minutes or mm -hmm. to your point, you know, that that will have a consequence. Yeah. So you're, you're exactly right. Now uh, it's really caused preparation to be so important. 
Oh yeah. And you know me, I'm, I'm a preparation. Yes, <laughs> you are. Yeah. We speak the same language there. Yep. Yeah. We talk about my 12 step prep process. Do not fly the seat of your pants. And you know, the, <laughs> there's so much that to me, it's almost like the investigation, the front part of the investigation and preparation is, is much longer than the investigation itself. All right. So um, to uh, kind of wrap things up um, it, with our episode today, Wendy. So what do you think are three best practices that you would like to share with our listening audience about conducting investigations today? If we think about, uh, let's kind of focus on your lane in, in ethics investigations, kind of three best practices. Love it. First, I would say preparation. Mm -hmm. uh, that includes the normal homework you should do on any case. To your point, that's that takes as much or more time sometimes than just doing those interviews and concluding the case. But knowing the work group that your witnesses or your reporting party or that your subject belong to, are they manufacturing employees? Are they office or administrative employees? Are they engineers? Are they doctors? Are they teachers? What, what is the role they have? So doing your homework, knowing the, the folks you're dealing with, what is their grade level? What is their role within the organization? Uh, knowing their schedule. What is the work environment like from a very real physical sense? Are they telecommuting? Are they in the office? Is it better for you to do an interview on Wednesday when they're at home and it's more private than perhaps when they're back in their cubicle Monday and Tuesday? Um, so preparation is key. You wouldn't go on a trip anymore without that uh, maps application on your phone, right? And you don't go into an investigation today without a plan. So preparation. Number two, communication. What we've been talking about today, Natalie, that be sure that you have well communicated, uh, that you have policy that talks about an expectation to cooperate in your investigations process, that your communication with parties to an investigation is clear and concise about the expectations, especially for a virtual interview. And then last, documentation. All of us, we used to have a saying in the FBI, if it's not in writing, guess what? It really didn't happen. Right. <laughs> and we say that because memories fail you. You may know a case inside and out in that moment, in that week two, three, that you're conducting the investigation. But with the pace of business today, those nuances and details will be long forgotten next month. And should there be uh, a follow-up, should there be a retaliation claim, should there be uh, a litigation, mm -hmm. you will want to make sure that your case record documented everything. I actually save my request for a meeting that has all my instructions in it, by the way. Yeah. I save my meeting notices to show that the party had the expectations and knew what the expectations were in the interview. I will document the report. If those anomalies happen and the, uh, were disconnected or they seemed upset or I had to, or they said they wanted to record even after I said my, that I asked them that we don't record this process. I want to note those little nuances and anomalies that happened in the investigation so that later I have a clear record of how that interview went. And then of course, your final case documentation, your report of investigation. Uh, so with those three things, preparation, communication, and documentation, you're probably on a good path to having a solid investigation. 
Yeah, terrific. Those are really some great best practices. And uh, I completely agree with you, my friend. Well, I'll tell you what, it has been a really, really great episode. And uh, I really want to thank you for joining us today, Wendy. And uh, so this is a, a podcast series where we talk about, uh, you know, the, the shop talk with uh, investigations. And this has been a really insightful one. So I hope uh, our listening audience has picked up some really great tips and techniques and best practices and understanding the trends that are going on. So for our listening audience, for show notes and free bonus resources, just visit um, hr-investigations.com forward slash podcast. And uh, we'd love it if you would subscribe, like, and share the show with any friends and colleagues who are looking for fresh ideas on how to make better people decisions uh, in their business. And uh, remember, if you'd like some help resolving your issues, just get in touch with us. And whether it's developing your leaders and teams, hiring better people, uh, creating a high performance culture or conducting an investigation, um, we'll help you boost the performance of your people. Thanks everybody. And we will see you soon for another episode. And thanks again, Wendy, really appreciate it. Thank you. Be good everybody. Thanks for joining us today on the HR Investigations Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, like, and share the show with any colleagues who will benefit from our strategies and solutions. For free bonus resources, simply visit hr-investigations.com. And remember, if you'd like some help with improving your investigative skills, or if your organization is in need of an external investigator to help with the case, please get in touch with us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.